Hi, I'm Becky. And I'm Helen. And welcome to another episode of the Salty Mums podcast. Exploring how as Christian mums we stay the salt of the earth in today's culture with women sharing their stories and wisdom. Hello. Hi, Becky. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, I'm feeling pleased today because the kids are at school. Yesterday we had a, in inverted commas, snow day. There wasn't much snow on the ground. There was no snow on the ground. <laughs> I then had to homeschool again for the day. Nobody checked the Google Classroom anyway, so I don't know why I bothered. Oh, bless anyway, you. Anyway, they're at school and I'm feeling good. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, and this morning... We will just get straight on to it. Let's um, introduce the lovely Natalie, who I've known quite a long time now, I think. It's about 10 years ago since I met um, Natalie, although it's six years since I've seen her in the flesh. Um, but Natalie is a gender justice specialist, and you might have seen her, if you're on the Twitter sphere, as God Loves Women. Um, and she has been working to address domestic abuse issues for over a decade. I've been reading her book recently called Out of Control, uh, Couples Conflict and the Capacity for Change, which is amazing. It's just it's such an incredibly helpful book, never having experienced domestic abuse, but wanting to understand more about it um, and to have more empathy and compassion for those who are experiencing it. So hello, Natalie. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. How are you this morning? I'm good. I've been for a swim. I've got some oh coffee. <laughs> That's because I have children who are 17 and 20. So. <laughs> yeah, you can do things like that when they grow up, right? <laughs> the light is at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be swimming in the morning, though, when my kids are that old. <laughs> Two things to know about Helen. She's anti-exercise and anti-pets. So. <laughs> no, anti-pets. I'm horrified. <laughs> I think it's because I don't have capacity to keep anything else alive in my life. Like, just too much responsibility already. I don't need to keep more things alive. I'm quite anti-plants for the same reason. I just yeah, can't house plants, no. <laughs> oh, so, Natalie, can you introduce yourself a little bit more for us? Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yes. Yeah, so, I am based in the northeast in Sunderland, in the northeast of England. Um, had lived in Essex for oh, like close to fifteen years, but I'm originally. Oh, did you? Six girl. <laughs> yeah, my um, I'm we moved up from uh Sunderland in 2020, but we were in Basildon in Essex. Basildon, Bas um, Vegas. <laughs> yes, we were there. Um, yeah, so we've been up here since 2020, and um, I. Uh, kind of for the last 15 years I've worked on issues around primarily men's violence towards women um which constitutes things like domestic abuse sexual violence pornography um more generally about women's rights too you know like when people say what do you do and I'm like oh no I'm going to depress them like literally I'm going to start the conversation are they going to be depressed by the end of it so I'm, like, I'm a fun person <laughs> so um I um yeah for for most of that time I've kind of done stuff in Christian culture and in Christian context and then kind of had one foot doing stuff in Christian culture and one foot in like kind of wider um, responding to to the issues um, but more recently I don't do a huge amount with Christians so my book was uh, the primary audience was Christians and I still kind of rant about the annoyingness of Christians on Twitter and, <laughs> and, like, and I still love Jesus and I'm uh, part of a local vineyard church but we but have um 
over the last uh since about 2018 i've um, got some funding to write a course for women who've been subject to abuse and i uh train practitioners across the uk to run that program uh through we had set up as a charity so i'm an accidental ceo a reluctant <laughs> ceo of the, um, the women's liberation collective which is the charity that oversees the own my life course um, and also wrote a course for young people about abuse and exploitation which we uh, train practitioners to run across the uk so um yeah so have kind of historically done a lot historicals makes me sound really old like (laughs) not like previously um i um did lots more stuff in the church so spoken at lots of christian events and um we uh, set up a project 328 which was about counting the number of men and women on the national christian platform and releasing the stats every year that would uh like celebrate the good ones and I wasn't quite shaming the bad ones but maybe like a tiny bit um, <laughs> yeah we have a database uh, for women who um want to speak at Christian events who've got kind of communication skills when event organizers like well we couldn't find a woman we can be like well there's a whole list of them here and um, so that's called um speaker 328 um so yeah so um that we haven't done the stats since covid because it felt really rather mean to event organizers and we've got to decide what do we do now but um yeah so that's a bit about me wow man. busy life yeah. <laughs> is that just your job title is <laughs> <laughs> so could you let us know and um, describe to us like why why domestic abuse became such a passion in your life yeah so um my uh i grew up in a christian home which came with both joys and challenges of like i mean there was nothing like evangelical christianity in the 80s you know marches for jesus little cre- little green cups and saucers like you know maranatha praise parties and like and so there was lots that was really joyous about being part of this kind of big family that all were passionate about god and um, but i did learn quite a lot of quite problematic stuff about like sex and relationships like not necessarily that we had that many sessions on it <laughs> like it was more like implicit and um, the two things I'd kind of learned about relationships in the church was um that sex is like a chocolate cake you put it right in that fridge and you stay right out of the kitchen yeah <laughs> um and the second thing I'd learned was that you should only have a relationship with someone of the opposite sex who holds the same faith as you like are they washed in the blood if they are that's fine Do you know <laughs> so like it was actually it didn't matter whether they're a nice person it doesn't really matter whether you're attracted to them because you're not gonna be having sex anyway so you know but just like literally just make sure they profess the same faith as you and so um that was challenging especially when you then combine that with a really strong focus on forgiveness on you know like as a teenager so I'm 38 so born in 1984 and um as a teenager there was something about like being non non sexually active that was like essentially the evidence of your faith as a Christian in wider culture I'm not sure whether it's the same the case now as much but there was this kind of sense like I I sort of like look back and think that female virginity sort of functioned like circumcision did you know like it was like this was the thing that evidenced that I was a real Christian and that I was in this youth culture that I was standing for Jesus um which is quite a lot of pressure to put on myself as a as a teenager and so um when I was 17 I uh, met a boy and he was very beautiful um (laughs) and uh, he um he professed to being a Christian and I was like oh tick the box and I'm like 
you know, we're not, no sex before marriage, I don't believe in sex before marriage, and he was like, okay, that's fine. Um, but one of the problems with the messages we receive in the church about um, this kind of chocolate cake type stuff is it doesn't really give any indication about when you're making active choices to be to be in, in a sexual relationship and when you're uh, subject to coercion or force. And so, you know, like, actually, there's a big difference between going into the fridge and snaffling all that chocolate cake and there's and then somebody dragging you in the into the kitchen and forcing you to eat the chocolate cake like those are two very different things but within the kind of cult the christian cultural background i came from like there wasn't any clarity about that it was just like if you're eating the chocolate cake the context really is irrelevant <laughs> and so um this uh the the guy that i met who was the set we were both 17 um was uh very manipulative very abusive and very coercive and controlling and so within 12 days he manipulated me into sleeping with him and then i was like I've got to marry him. That's the only way that I don't make Jesus sad, basically. <laughs> so I'm then 12 days into a relationship with somebody that I knew very little about and felt like I just have to stay in this relationship forever. And he um, was very abusive, very controlling, very isolating me from people, very intense to wanting to be with me all the time and wanting to kind of dominate all my thoughts and all my feelings. And, and I, it wasn't that wasn't only about Christian cultural messages about relationships. So I was kind of of the generation that watched 10 Things I Hate About You and Cruel Intentions, where the bad boy is turned good by the love of a good woman. <laughs> and also like the songs and the magazines, a lot of it was focused on women and girls, like putting themselves seconds. Um, and then Christianity like has a whole theology of like selflessness, which I think kind of, you know, one of the things that I would argue theologically is that we can't give up ourselves up as Christians until we own ourselves and most girls and women have not been encouraged to own themselves so part of the prophetic work we have to do with women in who've kind of been enculturated within Christianity is to encourage women to take ownership of their lives and and to own themselves rather than be kind of just passively you know giving and giving and giving because God wants us to have life in all its fullness like that's what Jesus came to do and so a lot of the messages that we get as women from society and from the church is really not benefiting us in terms of life in all its fullness so I was with him for uh over four years when I within six months I'm pregnant because uh I'd gone to a Catholic school so they didn't teach about contraception my mum and dad read the Daily Mail so they thought the pill was going to give me cancer and then um he <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah Sorry, he that's would, not funny but it's I, know, I mean it is quite funny um <laughs> Yeah, and then um, and then he wouldn't use contraception because it wasn't real if there wasn't a risk. And so, I mean, basically, I, I was the formula for being a pregnant teenager. Um, and so then I did marry him because, I, you know, we're having a baby and that kind of thing. And so I um, was, as I was, I was, I'd say I was with him for four years. And when I was 21 and I was pregnant with my son, um, he raped me, which led to my son being born three months premature. And then me, um, my son, who was uh, £2.6 when he was born, and my daughter, who was two and a half at that point, lived in a hospital for about five months. And it was living in that hospital that enabled me to break free. I didn't become some sort of empowered woman that was like, don't treat me like this. I'm, you know, like, I, I can do this. I'm empowered. I literally had to live in a hospital that was an hour and a half from my hometown because we didn't have any special intensive baby care um in our hometown and so it was that that enabled me to separate from him and and when I was in that place I sort of met Jesus for myself like I think growing up as a Christian you have this sense that like God is a bit like this 
anti that you've heard about like that everybody has amazing experiences of this anti and this anti is amazing like she's really made a difference to everyone's lives and you like are like this anti is amazing I love this anti but she lives in Australia and you've never met her before and so I had this really kind of conceptual idea of God being real and always believed in God but I hadn't really had that sense of knowing God for myself really um, and so when I was living in this hospital I'd lost everything essentially all my stuff got packed into my parents garage and I literally had no home I had these two like tiny sick baby and a toddler I was 21 I looked about 15 and and in that place I really met with God in a really transformative way and, and God said to me you need to um you need to stop praying for Joshua to live and you need to pray for my will to be done um and you need to love me the same regardless of whether he makes it and I actually like there was something really liberating I mean it sounds really brutal I do feel like it's like the least useful evangelistic testimony <laughs> like <laughs> no Christians would be like well I don't want God but there was something hugely liberating about making a choice to love God regardless of the outcome and that actually the loss of hope to some degree of like well that God's not promising he's not a magical fairy making everything better um was actually really transformative in my understanding of God and myself and um, and Joshua is now 17 and um, he's um, on the autistic spectrum but actually otherwise is is really healthy so um, yeah so that's kind of after as a result of that um, having been through that I I then went on a course that helped me to name what had been done to me as abuse because before that I just thought, well, he cheated on me all the time. So I kind of attributed all the problems to his kind of adultery or his uh, affairs. And actually, that was just a symptom of a much broader issue of his um, sense of ownership and entitlement of me that led to him behaving really atrociously towards me. Um, And so I went on this course and then I ended up being called to move to Essex, getting remarried to the man I'm now married to. Uh, He is a really great human being, but often I say he's only seen as as great as he is because because the standard of manhood's really low <laughs> you know like rather than actually like when people go oh he's so great and I'm like if he was a woman you wouldn't be making this just what you'd expect of you know so he's been the primary care of the kids for most of their growing up and um we work together on this on the work that we do does all the admin and finance and that kind of stuff and and so I think um yeah so I moved out to Essex had lots of like lots and lots of prayer and counseling and all sorts of stuff um, and then God called me to I literally was at a conference and an audible voice said to me you are going to work um, addressing men's violence towards women nationally and I was like oh I can't and God was like you can and I was like I can't I can't and God said well if I call you I'll resource you and I was like well I can't really argue with that and so um, <laughs> then this these doors started opening and these opportunities to do stuff and uh, I started um, running courses for women who've been subject to abuse in um, in Thorough in uh, ethics and all sorts of different stuff and then um and then we yeah and then have just kind of from there developed stuff and moved on from there so um what's the picture of domestic abuse in the UK like how many people are we talking about you know potentially in our friendship groups or people we know that are in abusive relationships yes so firstly I would say that I generally uh encourage people to avoid using the term abusive relationship um no that's okay like I'm not telling you off it's more to let you know and I think for anybody listening as well that we the term abusive relationship has become really prevalent Uh, it's used by women's aid it's used by lots of people who are working in the sector so like it's definitely not like on you to to know that (laughs) but actually um 
what one of the big myths about abuse is that it's a relationship issue. So in churches, if somebody's been subject to abuse and they they uh, disclose that, they'll often be kind of diagnosed as having a relationship issue. So they'll be ref- they'll be kind of pushed into couple counselling, or they'll be like a marriage enrichment course they'll go on. Um, and the problem is that while couple counselling is really valuable, while marriage enrichment courses are really valuable, they're not valuable if there's a perpetrator because actually the the difference between domestic abuse and relationship issues is domestic abuse is one person abusing the other person and this is a very one way. The, the problem is the perpetrator. In general relationship issues, both people have a part to play, so that sense of like both people have some responsibility and so the council will approach that couple with a sense of going oh well um you know what have you been doing and what have you been doing and there's this sense of um kind of expecting both people to be coming to the conversation with positive intentions even if it's messed up a bit whereas with a perpetrator one of the one of the couple is negatively intentioned and will be using every opportunity to manipulate, to control, to um to make things the way they want them to the detriment of the other person. And so um, I I would say, um, you know, having been subject to abuse, they've got an abusive partner. Usually there's very little places where we couldn't say abusive partner rather than abusive relationship and it works. So she left her abusive partner. Um, She had an abusive partner. And it's difficult when we're with somebody who's abusive. It feels quite judgy and quite like it's quite a big thing to say they're an abusive partner. So for people in that situation, it's totally understandable for them to want to say, abusive relationship but actually like part of the progress of moving forward is about us placing the responsibility and the fault with the perpetrator so anyway that's a by the way but in terms (laughs) of the question you actually asked me what is the prevalence in the UK so we know it's between about 25 and 30 percent of women in the UK will be subject to abuse by a partner at some point in their lifetime so um yeah so for every if you think about all the women you know one in three of them if you look at a street and if you imagine the street on your um uh, you know where your house is and you think that every third door behind every third door it's not that there will be a current abuse so at some point in their lifetime so I mean, behind every third door there will be a woman who is going to be abused or has been abused by a partner um so this is massive you know if we think about in our churches the amount of women in a church the number that will be, be being or have been or going to be subject to abuse and um you know I'd like to tell you that things are improving actually in terms of young people um data from like 2011 which I think it's probably worse now than it was in 2011 um suggests that 72 percent of girls will be subject to emotional abuse by a boyfriend um 32 percent will be subject to sexual abuse by a boyfriend so that's like three quarters of teenage girls will leave school by the time they're 16 having been emotionally abused by a boyfriend and that might include things like um having their phone like interrogated being expected to share their passwords being berated being guilt tripped being gaslit being told that they're worthless that they're useless it might involve some forms of um kind of coercion or isolating them from friends or family and so all that kind of stuff and so it is this kind of massive massive issue Um, And is at the root of a lot of the issues we see in society. So, for instance, um, the about 80 percent of child protection cases that social care are dealing with will have a perpetrator, a male perpetrator of domestic abuse as the main cause of that family's problems in terms of um, homelessness drug addiction, all of those things, there will generally be a male perpetrator at the bottom of it, whether um, for, for male men who are homeless or drug using drugs or women, 
Um, that very often they'll have been abused by a man as a child or they'll have seen their mother being abused by a man. So there's this kind of sense that this is at the root of so many of the issues that we might want to see addressed in society. Is there a way that you define abuse? Um, so I imagine probably, you know, we'd like to be able to put it in a box and say, yes, that is abuse and that isn't. Or is it more of a scale, you know, dependent on, I mean, you know, for example, if I ask my husband to not load, to load the dishwasher and he doesn't, is that abuse? <laughs> Are you wanting like something to go home and be like, <laughs> yes, um, no, I would say, I would say, um, I think one of the things about abuse is so much of it is all relational. Um, and so, so much of it exists in subtext and context. And very often people come to me and they're like, can you give me a, a tick list that if all these are present, then it's abuse. And actually that's really difficult because it's contextual so one woman her partner might say you're not allowed to go to work the, the you know ch child care is women's work i might do fun dad and babysit the weekends fyi you can't babysit your own kids babysit oh yeah <laughs> but uh, that's just a beside the point so <laughs> so he, he might be saying you're not allowed to work you've got to look after the kids and um might be exhausting her through demands around housework he might be he might be having kind of like a tick list of jobs she's got to do every day it might be about controlling the finances it might be about being sexually violent alongside that another woman her partner says to her you have to go to work you have to earn all the money and i'm going to look after these kids because i don't want you tainting them with your awfulness now if we were to look at both of those women with there were no tick box would allow us to recognize the abuse in both those situations the way that we get to the point of recognizing abuse is as with a lot of issues is by having enough involvement and relationship with somebody to be able to kind of see the subtleties of what's going on and how much of it is about her choice and how much of it is about her um, being coerced or forced into doing something so um so subtext and context are really important. So thinking about subtext, I um, worked with a woman where um, she came to a group and she said something weird happened this morning. And I was like, oh, what happened? She said, well, we were lying in bed and I didn't really know what we were talking about. But my partner started stroking my throat and he said, you know, if you ever left me, I'd have to slit your throat, wouldn't I? And then he sort of laughed and I felt a bit weird. Now, that is a death threat. But the context and the subtext did not fit that death threat. And so from now on, that woman is going through life knowing that her partner has the potential to kill her. And that is part of his thinking. But she also, it, that's only able to exist in one part of her brain because the rest of her brain is like, oh, but he was only joking. And I shouldn't, and if I, if she reacts and says, can't take you that, he'll say, oh, you can't take a joke. Oh, what's wrong with you? And so, so much of abusive behavior is, is much more contextual. It might be, you know, if I say to you, oh, you look really nice today. That sounds nice. If I say to you, oh, you look nice today. Um, they're the same thing, but they're saying something very different. One of the examples that um, I used to do some work with perpetrators, and one of the things that we'd talk about was a story where a guy um, is uh, with his partner and he comes home with flowers and he says, darling, I bought you some flowers. And she's like, oh, thank you. And then they sit down, they have dinner. And during dinner, he says to her, um, oh, should we have sex tonight? And she's like, oh, I'm really, really not up for it. And then he's like, oh, go on, go on, go on. And he moans and he moans and he moans. And she's like, no, really don't want to. And then he starts to touch her and she pushes him off and he continues to touch her. And then in the end, he holds her down, he rapes her. And the question is, when did he become abusive? And the answer is, 
if he bought those flowers with the intention of manipulating into sexual activity, the act of buying flowers was abusive. Now, I don't want people going away and going, this mad woman that I listened to on a podcast says <laughs> abusive. It's not that so much of abuse is about, there's two different elements to abuse. There's the, the intention. What does the abuser intend? If they're intending to control, then it's abusive. But also there's the impact. It might be that somebody isn't intending to be controlling, but the, but the way they behave is suffocating and very difficult and so the impact becomes abusive and so it's about um working out intention and that's the bit that's often missed in our conversations um and and being able to establish it through that so it, unfortunately i can't give you a clear list but i can say when we know more about our friends and family and the people around us we can start to ask better questions and approach we need to just approach people with curiosity um, and ask deeper questions rather than just assuming that what they say on the face of something is an accurate depiction of what's going on in their situation Pretty helpful, thank you. For my husband that may or may not be listening, <laughs> as long as you don't intend <laughs> what amazing, Natalie yeah. has just said, <laughs> flowers yeah. are good. Yeah. yeah, and I think um I think there's also like um one of the challenges we have is in the society we live, um men are generally allowed to get away with really kind of really not very helpful behaviour. So the thing you're saying about like not loading the dishwasher like there's something about the emotional labor that happens in a household and who does what and that being very gendered and there's something about us holding all men to a higher standard because actually like if if one guy is going to the pub and saying to his mates oh my wife she just won't stop nagging me like first she wants me to do the dishwasher then she wants me to babysit the kids and she's such a She's such a this, that, and the other. Actually, like the guys, if his friends go, oh yeah, well my wife, and that 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 is really like negative spiral. Whereas if they go, mate, loads of dishwasher, it's your dishes too. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it's not babysitting; it's looking after your own kids. There's something about um, men taking responsibility, equal responsibility for women for housework and for childcare, which may, would make it much easier to spot the men who aren't doing that and who are abusive, um, because it can be really exhausting if we're not having a partner who's equally sharing stuff. It doesn't necessarily mean it's abusive, but it can be problematic. Yeah, listen to that, husbands. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Hold yourselves yeah. to higher standards. Yeah. <laughs> Preaching it right here. Yeah. We all know that this isn't actually the target market <laughs> audience of the Salty <laughs> Mums podcast. Yeah, but if we play it like, like, hey. enough in front of our husbands, <laughs> then that's, they become the target audience. So there we go. Um, one thing that really shocked me in your book was how you're very clear you disregard that the usual sort of explanations of mental health alcoholism or other addictions or lack of emotional literacy that we we give for why people become abusive towards partners you sort of disregard them and you said you state that abusers choose to be abusive can can you unpack that a little bit for us because i i was sort of like oh that doesn't fit with my perception of this at all yeah i think one of the things is that we want to believe that somebody who is abusive much it must be a tortured soul because we can't believe that somebody would deliberately and intentionally want to harm and torture their partner the person they love the mother of their children their you know all of that kind of stuff and so we want to create some sort of tortured kind of identity that leads this this tortured man to abuse his partner um because it feels better like hurt people hurt people we can all understand that and the idea that somebody would be doing it without essentially not really having a lot of choice feels really offensive to us because we want to believe that people do what they do out of some sort of brokenness um but and it's interesting because when i ask in christian spaces why 
why are men abusive? Very, very rarely, if ever, does anyone say because we're all sinful and selfish. Do you know they're like because of this and because of that and because of which is interesting because like the fundamentals of our faith is that sin is a, a thing. Do you know what I mean? So I think there's some really interesting, <laughs> interesting stuff about what uh, the uh, there's a philosopher called Kate Mann and she came up with the word empathy, which is the undeserved empathy we afford to uh, men. And we're not just talking about perpetrators now, like, uh, you know, but it, we definitely see it when men kill women. It's like, oh, it's so hard for him. She left him or, you know, like some of the stuff we saw around Donald Trump and, and some of that stuff around empathy and affording particularly to white men. So where white men um, perpetrate uh, like mass shootings, they are mentally ill. You know, we don't afford those. So there's an intersectionality around where empathy becomes active and where it isn't. So I think there's something about that empathy that we want to believe that this man is is broken in some way and that he can be, you know, that if he if he was just loved more as a child, he wouldn't have been abusive. The reality is that being abusive is highly beneficial. Like I know I, I'm not advocating it here as a solution for anybody's problems, but I just it is highly beneficial to being abusive because if I'm abusive, I get a partner who never challenges me, who does exactly what I want when I want. I get to have the status of being a good parent and a good partner, but I don't actually have to do any of that. I get to blame them for everything that goes wrong. I get to never do any housework. I get to basically have the leisure time that I want and I get to make her feel bad when I'm doing what I want. And so there's something about understanding abuse as highly beneficial that's fundamental to this. Somebody who is sexually violent is benefiting sexually from being sexually violent somebody who is domestically abusing is benefiting domestically from being abusive and so when we put that piece about the benefits of abusing suddenly it's like well you know actually if I didn't have a high level of empathy and consideration if I didn't see my partner as an equal maybe I'd opt to a bit of a bit of coercive control because it give me what I want yes you're sacrificing intimacy yes you're sacrificing mutuality and loads of different stuff and you're but you know what you're mainly sacrificing is your partner and kids sanity and health but actually if you don't care about that on a fundamental level why would it matter because essentially you're getting what you want and so understanding the benefits of abuse are really crucial in this conversation about about abusive behavior um a guy that i um was speaking to at a men's event who came up to disclose that he thinks that he's abusive as a result of what i'd been sharing he said you know i was in a situation and i threw a chair because i was really angry with the way my wife was behaving and so i threw this chair and and i was just totally out of control i was it was angry and i i said to him did you throw it at your wife and he was like well no i never throw a chair at her I was like, so you chose where to throw the chair? And he's like, well, yeah. And I was like, well, you could chose not to throw the chair. So this idea that abusers are totally, like the red mist comes down and they have no control. Like one of the questions I would always ask is, why didn't you, why didn't you kill her? Why didn't you go further than you did? Well, well, I would never do that. Right. Well, if you could choose not to do that, then you could choose not to do any of this stuff. So there's something about the lines that a perpetrator has are just a different line that you and I have. Um, so that's that's part of it understanding this sense that they're making choices not to do certain things because that's too far that means they could make choices not to do any of this stuff um but they're benefiting from it and fundamentally when somebody's abusive the reason they're abusive is that on a really fundamental level they believe they own their partner i own you therefore i have the right i'm entitled to get what i want in this relationship um another guy um we're, we're on a perpetrator program. He uh, came to it. We had a check in at the beginning of each session, and he said, "Oh, um, my uh, my girlfriend kicked off before I left the house." And I said, "Oh, what happened?" He was like, "Well, 
well, my girlfriend wanted to go for a meal with her family because she's irrational. And I said that she couldn't. And because she's irrational, she kicked off. And I said to him, well, what's irrational about wanting to go for a meal with your family? And he was like, because she's irrational, because they don't like me because I've been violent to her. And she's irrational and wants to go for a meal with them. And so we just went back and forth with me going, but what is irrational about wanting to go for a meal with your family? And eventually, like a few, it felt like forever, but it was probably like 30 seconds. He just went, oh, she should be able to go for a meal with her family, shouldn't she? Yeah, she should. How does she think she's experiencing this meal now that you... So there's something about, on a really fundamental level, he believed that anything that she disagreed with him on, he was she was irrational, that she was wrong. And so in a relationship like that, that person can never... And the only person that's challenging him is her. Because in his other relationships, when he's like, oh, she kicked off because she's on her period and she's really rational, she wants to see her, ma- her mom who hates me. Do you think that's okay? And his mates go... No. Yeah, no, that's terrible. <laughs> oh, I can't believe it. You're like so hempecked, you know, like, oh, is that a thumb on your forehead? You know, like all that kind of stuff. And so I think there is, in terms of that, that fundamentally an abuser thinks that they are always right and their partner is always wrong. They might even think that they they are loving their partner, they're caring about it, but care is actually about control. Um, entitlement is really what's going on. And so the reason why the majority of perpetrators are male and the majority of those who are subject to abuse are female is because we live in a society where men are much more likely to develop beliefs of ownership and entitlement. If they're watching porn, they're learning that women like to be in pain and women like to be abused. If they are listening to me, music they're learning that you know women want um you know essentially that the relationship is more important than her sanity if they're um looking at images in popular culture of men and women they'll see themselves as powerful and they'll see women as passive and so there is this kind of long-term grooming of men into the potential to be somebody who holds entitlement and holds ownership over their partner and the problem is that we as women are also in that society so very often we don't know that that's unreasonable and unacceptable and so you know there was a guy who was a self-confessed gaslighter who had this article where he was saying he was asked about what he did and he said that the first time he gaslit a woman was he was cheating on his girlfriend and she um suspected him of cheating so he said to her when she said are you cheating on me and he was like how could you do that you're mad you are you're so you're so paranoid and then she said she said and to his surprise he said um she said oh is it me am I paranoid and he was like well that worked because actually she's been raised and enculturated in a society that says women are paranoid women are women are like you know kind of mad and they are irrational and so rather than going I am not paranoid you're cheating on me and so he learned that this was a way he could behave to get what he wanted benefits of cheating and not actually have to care about his partners so a lot of this is about getting away with that behavior and that's why it's really important we're all challenging it we're both um mums of boys as you were talking there natalie my um i how old is he he's nearly nine and um he definitely has issues with being angry and there's a phrase that we repeat in us in our house approximately every 20 seconds um it's okay to be angry but it's not okay to kick (laughs) spit bite etc 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 but as we were as you were talking about that i was i was thinking there's probably other people that are listening that have got boys and is there other um things you could help us with of of ways that we could basically like break this cycle of yeah. of men of, of boys growing up to be men feeling like they have entitlement over women yeah and i think you know that yeah i think there's something about as it doesn't matter how one of the things we have to be really aware of is and this is really terrifying as parents we only have a limited 
capacity to influence our children that if you know like if we lock them in a room we might have a bit more but I don't think it's probably highly ethical but (laughs) like actually that from the minute that they are out even when they're in in utero like before they're even born children are learning things about what it means to be a boy or a girl so the minute that we know the sex of a child we will start to relate to that child and we will start to use tone of voice that's different we will start to use language that's different you know you can tell whether I'm talking to a boy or a girl baby by whether I say oh you're a chunky big strong thing (laughs) how pretty you are you don't need me to tell you who I'm talking to but we know that that's the sort of thing that's happening so from before birth that child is being exposed to particular ideas of what it means to be a boy what it means to be a girl and then that kind of then when they're dressed in different clothes and when they're the toys they're given and and the expectations placed upon them and so what we see is many girls do not have anger problems because everywhere they go they're they're kind of at they're kind of demanded to be much more socially um capable in a way that boys we just don't have that same expectation it doesn't matter how much we think that we're not like, you know, highly gendered. We are because we all have lived in this culture ourselves and we're not aware of it. So it's not about beating ourselves up, but I think it is, one of the things I'd say is it's being really, really aware of all the different messages that our children are getting. And it's about us helping them to critically engage with those messages. Um, The comedian Robert Webb, he wrote a book called How Not To Be A Boy. And in that book, he talked about, I think it was in an interview after the book, actually, he talked about how with his little ones, he has, his, him and his wife have got two daughters, little ones under five, and they both, they'd say to their kids when they go to nursery and the, um, and, and they'd be told, oh, you know, Johnny says that I can't play with the trucks because I'm a girl. And, and they would use the language of the lie. They'd say, well, Johnny believes the lie that only girls can do certain things and only boys can do certain things. But we know that that's not true, don't we? And I think within, if, if we come from a faith perspective, of ourselves we already do that all the time with our kids around the fact that we hold a christian worldview that we know loads of other people won't hold and so we we navigate that with our kids all the time going well we you know like i mean we didn't have father christmas um as a i mean now people will think i'm a monster some people will i mean you know this is the worst thing i can say but essentially we we said that santa was a game that we play because we didn't want to lie to the kids we didn't want to make them think that jesus wasn't real when they stopped thinking santa was real you know all that kind of stuff um and so we always were navigating this sense that lots of your friends will think santa's real and that's okay because that's up to their grown-ups if they choose for santa to be real but we don't we want to to raise you in this way and so there's something about how do we engage with the wider messages that they're being exposed to because they will be being seeing this all the time their friends will be saying stuff to them or the adults in their lives whether you know so I think there's something about a much broader cultural and uh, kind of critical engagement with the world around us that can help us with our um with our children to to be really skilled in having those conversations and 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 talking about what it means to be kind and to be caring and I think you know like some of it's just being a decent human being isn't it like you say we don't fight our friends do you know <laughs> we don't kick people and okay. um, yeah so I think it, it's I would say that's the piece that often people are not aware of it's a lot about what we're doing to, to kind of put them on a certain path but some of it's about being really aware they're being exposed to all these other paths and how are we going to support them to navigate that and, and understand that the right path is this sense that actually we all should be liberated into our full selves not be limited by kind of fixed ideas of men and women absolutely I've, I've been doing that with my son George recently because his younger brother came home saying boys win games more than girls because girls are less weak and so I drilled into George what are girls and he's like equal I've got really short hair and um my nephew who for a while lived with us and um 
And he um, came home from uh, school and he was like, boys have short hair, girls have long hair. And I was like, well, that's... to say that, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a girl and I've got short hair. So what does that mean? And he was like... It was really interesting because I think there's something about um, psychology. What psychology does is it's about we what we think to be true is reinforced like we will continue to we will take any evidence that that backs up our facts and any evidence that doesn't back up our facts we disregard which is a big issue for lots of things and lots of problems in our society so there's this sense of that we have a response we might think well I'm modeling this and I'm you know I'm like a quite a gender non-conforming woman like that my kids are going to learn that no they're just going to disregard me in any of my gender non-conforming ways unless I'm explicitly like but that, I I don't I don't fit that do I a bit like you you know saying to your kids well I'm a girl and I put I win all the time come on let's let's have a game I'm gonna win <laughs> so I think there's something about we have to be you know we have that kind of reinforcement of whatever we believe to be true which we see in lots of areas with adults never mind kids means that we have to be very explicitly so you know like another thing we had lots of friends who were single when um, our kids were young and and even now because it's important to us that but but what was really interesting is when we'd have a conversation because if if one of them would say oh when I get older and I get married and I said like, well you don't have to get married you can you can stay on your own you don't nobody has to get married and they were like and then we I'd say John John's not married yes he is and I was like, well, where's his wife? I don't know, but he's got one. And it was like, oh, it's assumed that everyone's married. And so when I was like, well, he's not. And they, <laughs> they, they we had to like really argue that this guy that they'd never know, that was single was was not did not have a secret wife that they'd, they'd never seen. So I think, you know, like we can assume that we're creating a space where they're exposed to lots of stuff, but any exposure that's to things that are not things that 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 are kind of how the world works or how they're learning the world works has to be explicitly pointed out to them or else they're just going to like dis- disregard it. Mm, that's really super helpful. helpful. Thank you. Natalie, we're, we're fast running out of time and we want to be, the purpose of this podcast is partly sort of helping us as women to be salty in the world, you know, be salt and light a little bit. What I'd, I'd love to end the podcast on really is giving some advice to maybe women who are listening to this who suspect that they might have an abusive partner but also to us who aren't in abusive or or have abusive partners to be able to maybe spot some signs of abuse and to be able to how can we help friends or or people we know um in those situations so that's quite a big question (laughs) yeah yeah and i so i'd say um you know some of the stuff we need to be aware of particularly for christian women is some of the kind of messages which could be liberative but are actually really harmful if we've got an abusive partner so firstly stuff around being men and women this idea of submission and him being the head um stuff around um divorce being like a sin um stuff around um forgiveness like forgiveness is a massive one it was definitely a massive thing for me this sense of I just have to forgive him because it mostly wasn't actually very Christian in like the first three weeks but by then I was kind of committed um so um there was a sense that if I love him enough Jesus will save him that's like a huge amount of responsibility to put on my on my shoulders and actually by um maintaining that relationship I was actually enabling him to continue sinning and actually one of the things that god really hates is sin do you know like and and when we're if we're thinking if i love him enough if i'm selfless enough if i give myself away enough 
to him, then he will um, become saved and become all of the things that God wants him to be. But that is not how it works. If somebody is abusive, we have to put boundaries in place. There's, um, you know, when when um, the devil takes Jesus up to the high platform when he's tempting him in the desert, and he says, um, if you jump off this high platform, um, the, the angels will say you, you because the Bible says blah, blah, blah. And um, it doesn't say blah, 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 it's actually... <laughs> As you quote something, and then um, Jesus says, but the Bible also says, "Do not test the Lord your God." And I think there's something about our advice to people and people's own self knowledge about what's going on. We are testing the Lord our God when we demand that somebody stay with a perpetrator. We when we stay with a perpetrator and just like with all of the information that we have about how awful he is and how dangerous he is and how he's harming us. And if he's harming us, he's harming the kids. If we've got kids, he is harming the kids. And we don't want to believe that. We want to, you know, we also have lots of messages about the need for fathers and about the importance of marriage and all of the stuff that's damaging in sight. All the research about the value of marriage and married parents for children is in the context of that marriage being one where there isn't a perpetrator of domestic abuse. The worst thing, it is much worse for children to be raised in a household with a perpetrator of domestic abuse than it is for them to be raised in a single parent household. Fundamentally, like absolutely, there is no doubt about that. So so that recognition that this is harmful is is really important and that our kids are being harmed it doesn't matter how much we think we're hiding it how much we think we're protecting our kids they are being damaged if there's a household with an abuser because most abusers see their children as something that they own or are entitled with too so that that entitlement and ownership extends to their children so i would say that forgiveness does not mean nullifying the consequences of what that man has done um when joseph um is in um is uh, confronted by his brothers who've abused him he threw him down a well and kind of essentially t- tried to kill him when joseph is in that situation he doesn't go come back in he puts loads of tests in the way to check that they're going to be different and he doesn't become vulnerable to them until those tests are um are kind of passed Similarly, when when Saul is being abused by David, he runs and hides in a cave. He doesn't go, yeah, come on, I'll just forgive you again. He hides in a cave. And when Saul comes in to have a poo, he doesn't say that, it says really. <laughs> but when Paul, Saul comes in to have a poo, David cuts the corner of his garment off and shows him in the corner of the garment in the in the kind of Jewish teaching was like these these kind of strings which represented the covenant. And David holds up this representation of the covenant and says you aren't holding yourself accountable to who God made you to be and who God's called you to be. And he does that in front of everybody. He holds David to account. He doesn't just say, oh, well, just kill me. I better stay around because God wants me to forgive. No, he, he doesn't he doesn't sin in his relationship towards Saul, but he definitely puts boundaries in place and runs away and keeps himself safe. And so these are these are the stories in, in scripture that we can we can use in our understanding of ourselves. And so I think more generally in terms of um, the question of what what does somebody do if they're listening and they're concerned about their partner's behaviour um, or they're concerned about somebody they know, I'd say um, find a way safely to Google what your local domestic abuse service is. So um, if there's any risk that your partner's tracking your phone or is checking up on your phone, you might want to do that from a library or you might want to do that from a friend's phone. Um, but con- find out what your local domestic abuse service is. The way you do that is just put your the name of the place you live in and domestic abuse and then it will show you what all the services are. Um, and you may be able to get some support from a local service. Um, talking to somebody you trust but be careful because I think particularly if the people we trust are Christian, they don't know much about abuse 
abuse, they might jump into, oh, this is a relationship issue, let's get them to marriage counselling. And so Christians are not often, unless they've done some of the work that we're talking about today, they're not often going to be able to detach this from their other baggage around relationships and around marriage and, and all of that kind of stuff. So I think um, choose wisely to confide in somebody um, and and start to take some steps to to recognise abuse. If you're able to read my book, it's got lots and lots of information in. And, and the same for if you're supporting somebody who's being subject to abuse. Um, being, um, being curious, asking questions, asking questions about intention. If, if she's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm really late. Um, you know, my husband thought it'd be hilarious to hide my phone. Like, or, you know, he'd, he'd, I, I couldn't find the car keys and I think he'd moved them and I, it took him ages to get back or whatever. We could ask some questions about, like, that's a bit weird. Do you think, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's not intentional. Do you think there's any way it could be intentional? Do you know, like, so just this sense of, like, just planting seeds. What our job is as a family or friend or somebody to support that person is our job is to plant seeds. We can't we can't give them um, the ability to be ready to leave. But what we can do is continually plant seeds and create a context where they're open to those seeds growing. And we'll just stick around. The best thing that we can do is to remain present because the abuser will try to remove anything that gives that woman strength. And if we're one of the people that gives them strength, hopefully we are, they're going to try to alienate us from from them. And so the best thing we can do is to stick around and to do the opposite of what the abuser does. Where he's telling us she's worthless, we can say, you are an amazing human being. Where he's reducing her choices, we can say, do you know what? There's so many different things you could do with your life. Where he's saying, no, no, you don't want to do that. that you're, you, you wouldn't be any good at that. We can say, you'd be amazing at that. You know, it might be about offering financial support it might be about offering to look after the kids so she can go to appointments it might be about um helping her to see that her understanding of her faith might be a bit wonky in terms of some of this stuff so sticking up the best thing we can do is stick around because um that will really really annoy him um to which you know if nothing else is quite a, a useful thing to do but I, I think so yeah so i'd say be curious be consistent and remain present to her as much as you possibly can, regardless of what he's doing to alienate her and regardless of what she's doing, which feels like she's alienating herself from you. It might be that he's sending messages from her phone or her social media to tell you you're awful. It might be that he ramps up some minor conflict between the two of you. And so it's about saying, actually, I'm going to remain present and I'm going to recognise that it's probably him driving a lot of this stuff that's trying to cause wedges between us. Um, Yeah. That's so helpful. And Natalie, we could talk to you all day. <laughs> we really could. It's It's been, um, it's really yeah, insightful. really, really insightful yeah. and really recommend your book. Um, um, yeah, so thank you so, so much. We'll share some of the details of your um, books and courses in a minute. And um, have you have you got time just to, for us to pray for you very quickly or do you need to dash dash? Yes, very quickly. I'll do a quick prayer. I'll do quick prayers, right? <laughs> you, can't say, you can't say no to prayer really, can you? It's a bit of a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> dear lord god thank you so much for natalie and for all of her um work in this area father mm. we're so grateful for her sharing her wisdom this morning and lord god i do just pray for anybody listening who's been impacted by this this morning in whatever way whether it's supporting friends or themselves or um people being convicted of, of messages they've given friends in the past mm. or whatever it is lord we know that you know those intimate details so we pray father that you would be working in those situations that your hand would be in all of those different families, in all of those households, and that you would be giving your your divine wisdom to the people who need to make decisions because of what they've heard this morning. Mm. Amen. 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 Oh, thanks, Natalie. Thank you. Thank so you. Bye. Thank
How did you find that, Helen? I thought she was awesome. Like, I could have spoken to her all day. I, was, I found it really, really interesting. You know, when you like, when you listen to someone and you think, especially about her like upbringing in church, um, yeah. and you think, yeah, like I've never really, I don't know if I've never thought about it or never just like named it or, but yeah, yeah I totally empathised with her and, and you know, for, for me, it kind of worked out all right with those up with those kind of principles yeah. of upbringing but it's really interesting when she unpacked that about you know the whole story of forgiveness and sex before marriage and all of that i could totally see how that can you know how that ended Twisted. up working yeah, yeah working itself out absolutely yeah and it's just so um practical as well with her ideas as to what we can do for that and i really found that in the book as well like it's it's so so helpful and I really would advocate to anyone, whether you know someone who's um, got an abusive partner, not relationship, yeah. <laughs> um, or um, whether you're going through it, or, or whether you don't know anyone, I really, really recommend um, reading the book because it just sounds statistically like you're going to come into contact mm. um, with someone who will do. Um, so j- before we go, I do just want to just mention some of um, Natalie's uh, links and things like that um, because she's got many and she's a very helpful lady. <laughs> um, so she's um, you can find her on Twitter at God Loves Women if you want to follow her. Um, her book is called Out of Control um, and you can get it on the, the A word. Or <coughs> your local other, Christian bookshop. Yes, or your lo- yes, local Christian bookshop. I should say that first, really, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Um, um, she's also got a Grove book, um, which is about uh, gender-aware youth work. So if you're a youth worker, or um, maybe you could gift one to your youth worker. Um, maybe ask them first. It might sound a bit... <laughs> um, she also runs a programme called The Day Programme, which is for um, sort of teenagers about... Um, the issues that she was talking about today and then she also has the own my life course which is for um women who um have had um abusive partners um and i will put all the links to those um but the day program is at dayprogram.org and the own my life course is at ownmylifecourse.org and um you can look those up but wow what a woman what a woman we hope you've enjoyed uh listening to her as much as we've had enjoyed hosting her and we will speak to you next time no we won't no it's the end of the oh, season it is, isn't it we've made it we've made it to the end yeah made it to the end how do you feel um i don't know really i've 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 had a really yeah it's been a really interesting time of i've really enjoyed speaking to some of these really amazing well all of them have been amazing in their yeah. own way haven't they um real diverse experiences yeah and learned so much that I, I wouldn't have done if I hadn't have yeah. had these conversations so yeah hope that you've got as much from the conversations as we have yeah absolutely right well hopefully we'll see you for another season sometime <laughs> <laughs> bye. bye remember all the links that we've talked about today can be found on our show notes if you've enjoyed the podcast today please do remember to hit subscribe if you haven't done already and even better you can help us reach a wider audience by giving a quick review on whichever platform you're listening on see you next time bye, bye.